Father, we pray that in this moment you would send out your light and your truth and that you would lead us closer to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please do open uh, to Galatians 5, verse 16, and uh, just have it there in front of you as we look at it together. Last week, we looked at that great gospel statement uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We saw in that statement that God wants us to live in the goodness of gospel freedom every day. But we also acknowledge that this is a path, this path of gospel freedom is one we can fail to walk in. On one side, we can veer off the path into the path of legalism, where we think we need to add to the sufficient finished work of Christ so that we can be right with God. But on the other side, we can veer off the path of liberty into license, where we think because Christ has done all that's needed to make us right with God, we can kind of just live whatever way we want. We get very sloppy in our pursuit of godliness. We introduced then that generally this Christian path of true liberty is a life of faith, hope, and love. By faith, we trust in Christ and put all our hope for righteousness in him. That hope-filled faith finds expression through love, love for the Lord, and as verse 14 of chapter 5 specifies, love for other people. This was all introductory and general last week as we looked at what walking on this path of Christian liberty looks like. But now in the passage we come to this morning, we're going to really concentrate a little more specifically on what it looks like to live our lives on the path of true gospel freedom, gospel liberty. And in Galatians 5, 16 to 26, Paul is essentially answering the question, okay, how practically are we to live our lives on the path of gospel freedom? What does it look like as a Christian to live your life in a way that honors God, where you're not drifting off into legalism and feeling really guilty because of your performance, but you're not drifting off into license where you're just kind of getting really sloppy? What does it really look like to walk on the true path of Christian liberty flourishing in the goodness of the gospel. And do you know how Paul answers that question in short? How do we live in the goodness of gospel freedom? In short, he says, you've got to cultivate a close and personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Or to use the language of verse 16, you need to really understand what it means to walk by the Spirit. If you want to live a life on the path of gospel freedom, flourishing in the goodness of the gospel every day, you've got to learn what it means to walk by the Spirit. Now, this passage is about living in the goodness of the gospel, as I said, and last week we saw that God wants us to live in the goodness of the gospel. 
So if that's the case, we should sit up and pay really close attention to what's said in these verses. God wants us to live in the goodness of the gospel. These passages teach us how to live in the goodness of the gospel. And if so, then we really need what's in these verses. Look at the language Paul uses for our need of the Holy Spirit to live in the goodness of the gospel. Just briefly, verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll not veer off into license, just doing whatever you want to do. Then verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. You won't veer off into some kind of legalistic world where you think you have to add to the work of Christ to be right with God. Then look at verse 25. He says we are to live by the Spirit. And also, we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Look at all that language of walking, following, being led. This is all about what it is to walk through your life in the path of the goodness of the gospel, true gospel flourishing and freedom. Seven times in this short passage, Paul speaks of our need for the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit helps us to flourish as Christians. So, to live in the goodness of true gospel freedom, you need to seek the power and help of the Spirit. And Paul in this passage unpacks three ways that we need the Spirit's help to walk in the goodness of gospel freedom. And those three ways are what we're going to spend our lion's share of, the lion's share of our time on this morning. Number one, we need the Spirit to stir up within us strong desires for godliness. So how do we need the Spirit's help to walk on the path of gospel freedom? First, we need the Spirit to stir up within us strong desires for godliness. Now in verses 16 to 18, Paul introduces us to the fact that the Christian life is an ongoing battle between two powers at work within us. These two combatants are named here as the flesh and the spirit. Look at what Paul says there in verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now what does Paul mean when he speaks of the flesh? Well, he's not referring to the meat that clothes our bones, but actually to the sinful nature that controls our hearts. Flesh, in Paul's writing, refers to what we are by nature, our fallen condition, the condition we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. From our inherent sinful nature flows our sinful actions. You've probably heard someone say before, you know, sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. It flows from our nature. That's why we don't have to teach our children to do wrong or resist authority or to be selfish. Our sinful acts flow from our sinful nature. It's in our nature to act, think, and speak in ways that are displeasing to God. So when Paul speaks of the desires of the flesh in verses 16 and 17, he's speaking of the sinful desires that arise from our sinful natures. Desires to think things, do things, and say things that are displeasing to God. 
by nature, we have a fallen nature, a sinful nature. But then notice the other combatant. It's not, there's not just the flesh creating desires. There's the spirit who is creating desires. And you see, when we become Christians, what Jesus referred to in John 3, new birth in the Holy Spirit, when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit enters our lives and he brings with him a whole new array of desires and longings to do things which are pleasing to God. Now, this is exactly what God said he would do in many prom- promises in the Old Testament. For example, in Ezekiel 36, 26, God said that in the new covenant in Christ, he would give his people new hearts. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, and he brings longings and desires and and makes you want to do things that honor and please the Lord. So when Paul speaks of the desires of the Spirit, contrasting the desires of the flesh in verse 17, he's speaking of the desires within us that flow from the indwelling Spirit. Desires that lead us to say things, do things, and think things that are pleasing to God. So Paul says in the life of the Christian, there's the old nature that's still there trying to exert an influence, creating desires that are displeasing to God, but the Holy Spirit has entered and he is the more dominant force and he produces desires in us to act in ways that please and honor God. And look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, what does that statement mean? Well, essentially, Paul's saying that your actions at every point are governed by by either the flesh or the spirit. You're never really free by yourself. You're always following either the natural desires of your fallen nature or you're following the new desires prompted by the Holy Spirit. But here's the truth that I just want us to focus on at this first stage of looking at this passage. It's this simple truth that I don't want us to miss. All of our good, God-honoring desires, all of our appetites for the things of God, they come from the Holy Spirit working within us. Apart from the Holy Spirit working good desires within us, none of our desires would be good. In Romans 7, 18, Paul makes this abundantly clear. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In Galatians 3, 3, Paul said that our Christian lives begin with a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit who comes and generates new spiritual life within us. He moves in on our hearts and the Spirit's very longing for God, becomes in some way infused into us. Do you remember how back in chapter 4, verse 6, we read, the Father sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit is sent into our hearts to create a new 
longing for God and for the things of God. So the Spirit is sent from the Father into our hearts. It's the Spirit of the Son. And the Spirit's own yearning for communion with the Father and the Son is in some way infused into us so that we long with the Spirit. Abba, Father, that is a longing from the Spirit placed within us so that we want God. Now, for as long as I can remember, after my dinner, I've had a cup of tea and a wee chocolate biscuit. I love it. In fact, it's one of the things I struggled when I went to live in England. A cup of tea means a cup of tea in England. And I long for my wee sweet treat. And I actually think that I've become so accustomed to this little sweet treat after my dinner and lunch and sometimes breakfast that any time I've eaten my main meal... This longing just rises up within. I just need something sweet. And, and I just love a wee Kit Kat and a cup of tea. And there's just this longing within. If I haven't had it, I feel it. Now, I can see some of you are nodding, and you can, this is hopefully not just me. But after that dinner, say I don't have that chocolate bar, I feel it. There's a longing. It's very real. Well, the Holy Spirit works within us to create longings that are very real. Longings for something sweet, but something sweet from the Lord. And Paul says here, if we can learn, in verse 16, to walk in the Spirit, in verse 18, if we can learn to be led by the Spirit, that is, if we can learn to follow the desires He prompts within us, then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, and we will live in the goodness of gospel freedom. To overcome our sins, whether it's drifting into legalistic righteousness or it's drifting into licentious living, to overcome our sins, we need to cultivate more of a practical dependence on the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to stir up within us greater longings for God and for His ways. Apart from this work of the Spirit, we can do nothing. How can you defeat the sin of legalism? adding to the work of Christ? How can you defeat the sins of license where you indulge the flesh and really struggle with it? You need the Spirit to create in you greater desires for holiness. And what I want to just ask at this point is, how are you doing in relating to the Holy Spirit in this way? You see, I think so many of us just work away in our Christian lives with a vague idea of wanting to grow, a vague idea of our responsibility, and a very vague idea of what the Holy Spirit does to help us. I thought when I came to this passage through the week, I thought I knew what it already said, and I was going to spend ages talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And whenever I actually studied the passage, I came to see this is all about our need for the Holy Spirit to help us to walk in godliness. It's everywhere. Walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Have you recognized your need of the Holy Spirit to create good, strong, holy desires and appetites for God? Or are you just kind of content with your appetites as they are? Could you perhaps, in response to this message, even now in your heart, be praying, Oh Lord, Holy Spirit, stir up within me. Turn up the volume. Give me greater desires for holiness.
greater desire to read my Bible, a greater desire to fight those sins of the flesh that I struggle with, a greater desire to resist those chocolate biscuits, (laughs) whatever it is. How big is this category in your own thought, in your own prayer life, in your own walk as a Christian? We need the Spirit to stir up within us strong desires for godliness. That is one area of life we need help from the Holy Spirit in. The second then is this. We need the Holy Spirit to help us crucify or put to death the sinful desires of our flesh. The journey on the path of Christian liberty involves an active fight against the desires of the flesh that want to pull us back into slavery. I often say that there are two aspects to sanctification or growing as a Christian. There's the active work of fighting to put sin to death, and then there's the active work of trying to promote godliness in your life. And that's essentially what we're going to see in this passage. When I was a child uh, in the build-up to Christmas, I used to love looking at toy catalogs just love pouring over the Argos catalogue to figure out what I would get for Christmas. I drew circles around so many things that I wanted. Well, here in verses 19 to 21, Paul gives us a catalogue, but it's not a very nice catalogue. We could call it an ugly catalogue of the works of the flesh. And this is in our Bibles so that we can identify the sins that we are actively trying to fight against on the path of Christian liberty. The Spirit helps us to both identify and then put to death our own sin struggles. But before we do get into that list, let's just look down at verse 24, where Paul states clearly where these works of the flesh belong. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These are things in this catalog that are to be crucified, that is, put to death. These are things we are to fight to kill. Now, let's look at them. The catalog of fleshly works can be categorized under four headings. First group are works of the flesh that we see in the area of sexuality. Verse 19, sexual immorality, that usually refers to sex outside of marriage, but it can refer to any unlawful sexual activity. Impurity is unnatural, unclean sexual practices. Sensuality is a total lack of self-control and restraint in sexual activity. This part of our sinful flesh must be crucified. We work to put to death those desires, to act in sexually sinful ways, whether that's actively engaging in sexual relationships outside of marriage, or it's lusting over pornographic material on the internet. Crucify the flesh. Don't take the flesh down from the cross and try to perform CPR on it. Don't breathe the breath of life into it. Don't try to resuscitate it. It's been crucified. It must remain on the cross. Every time you indulge the flesh, it's like you're giving CPR to the old self. 
The next heading then are works of the flesh that have to do with our worship. Just two things here, verse 20. Idolatry, that's taking good things and making them ultimate things. Looking to anything that is God for our ultimate source of satisfaction and wholeness. Sorcery is flirting with the forces of darkness from all sorts of things, from horoscopes to fortune tellers to substance abuse and hallucinogenic drugs. It's interesting, in the Greek, the word is like a word for pharmacy. Um, so pharmacists, don't worry, it doesn't mean that that's an act of the sinful nature. It's the idea of hallucinogenic genic substances that make you go on trips. These are all the acts of the flesh that make you behave in ways that dishonor the Lord. Then the third category we could give to these works of the flesh, this is really the lion's share of the terms, they all have to do with conduct in our relationships. Listen to all of these words and ask yourself, are any of these showing up prominently in my life? Verse 20, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Where there's enmity, relational strife, where we're quick to anger, where there's jealousy, where there's envy, we're probably indulging the flesh that we're supposed to be crucifying. Fourth category then has to do with the whole area of self-control. Drunkenness and orgies or that could be translated out-of-control parties. Self-control. You know the Bible doesn't anywhere condemn the drinking of alcohol, but it condemns everywhere drunkenness. Why is that? Because you lose the ability to think clearly, and you end up making very unwise decisions, and you do things that are displeasing to the Lord. This is not an exhaustive list, as Paul adds, notice in verse 21, and things like these. And then after that catalog, that ugly catalog of the works and characteristics of the flesh, Paul gives a clear warning. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the ESV has a really helpful note there. That that Greek word prasso, which means to practice, means those who make a practice of these things. I think that's quite important. This is not speaking of isolated lapses that we have in our ongoing struggle with sin. This list is here to say, are you habit- ask you the question, are you habitually practicing any of these things? Have you given in to them? Are you letting them reign in your life? Such habitual, sinful behavior, giving into it, letting it have free reign, shows we are not in Christ. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're not true sons, so we have no inheritance. That's Paul's logic. Remember how much he's been speaking of this letter, of the fact that in Christ we're made sons. And that means all the inheritance of the kingdom, all the goodness of what is ahead, it's all ours in Christ. But then those who truly are in Christ are given new desires, and they want to walk in ways that honor the Lord. So if your life is not characterized by what we're going to see, the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, you can have no confidence that you're truly a son and going to inherit the kingdom. And that's why Paul says so clearly in verse 21, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
He's not saying that our salvation is works-based. He's saying, no, those who are truly in Christ, who are right with God, have transformed desires, and they don't want to practice those things. They want to practice what we're going to see now, the fruit of the Spirit. So these are the characteristics that we are to crucify, that is to put to death. And this is something that we do. We are active in this. But we can only do this work by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that practically right at the end, how we practically do that. But in Romans 8, 13, Paul is clear. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, that is by the power of the Spirit, the help of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, the flesh, you will live. This is why I say this is an active part of Christian living. It's what I sometimes call the forgotten aspect of Christian growth. We're not just supposed to be reading our Bible and try to put on good things. We're to be actively fighting off bad things. John Owen, in his little book, The Mortification of Sin, has said the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business every day to mortify, that is to kill, the indwelling power of sin. Then he asks these questions. Do you mortify? Do you actively put to death sin? Do you make it your daily work? Is it a part of your Christian life? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So again, just before we move on, let's ask ourselves, are any of these characteristics of the flesh in that ugly catalog of the flesh's, the characteristics of the flesh, are any of these characteristics evident in any significant way in my life? Could you identify one or two particular sin struggles in that list that are struggles for you? And maybe as a response to this message, could you really begin to go after them to put them to death? Could you start to really pray? Say it's being short, you know, when you're stressed or you're angry and you snap at people and you really have a struggle with that. Or maybe it's gossip for you. You just find yourself gossiping about other people. Or maybe it's lust or looking at pornography on the internet. Could you really say, right, I'm going to actively try to put that to death. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to ask the Spirit to crush that desire and give me desires to defeat this sin. I'm going to read scriptures to help me with that. I'm going to actively fight to put those sins to death. Something I've been working on recently is my use of my phone. So I was getting into a habit of turning to my phone first thing in the morning and scrolling through it. And before you know it, five or ten minutes would go. And then I'd get up, and I'd be under pressure because the kids were up, and I'd lose 10 minutes of prayer time because of the 10 minutes on the phone. And I started to think about that, and I thought, that is not good. And yet, I seem to be almost addicted to that moment of scrolling on my phone. So I've started to not have my phone in the room with me, um, so that I won't go to it first thing in the morning, and I've been praying intentionally about it. Lord, help me to not waste that precious morning time scrolling in just BBC News or randomness. So there's just one example from me, your pastor, just saying there's one area where I'm actually trying to say, Lord, I don't want this. It's not a good use of my time. Help me with it to fight that so that I'll use my morning time better. You can think yourself, where in your life could there be things you can identify and really go after them with the power and help of the Spirit? That's how we grow. So that's the second area where we need the help of the Holy Spirit to walk on the path of gospel liberty. We need the Spirit to help us crucify and put to death 
the sinful acts of our flesh. Third then, finally, we need the Holy Spirit to help us cultivate godly or Christ-like characteristics in our lives. So part of our growth as Christians is putting to death, but now we're starting to think of the part of growth that is actively working to cultivate godly character. The journey of life along the path of liberty doesn't just include the crucifixion of the flesh, it involves the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit. And in verses 22 and 23, we get this beautiful catalog of the fruit of the Spirit. And notice just in passing, they're not called the works of the Spirit. You'd probably expect that. Contrasting so clearly the works of the flesh, they'd be contrasted with the works of the Spirit. And I've been thinking this week, why does Paul not use works of the Spirit? Why does he go to fruit of the Spirit? And I've thought of a few reasons. I think because fruit emphasizes how these character traits grow. They grow and mature gradually over a period of time, like fruit on a tree. You don't grow love all in a moment. It takes a lifetime to mature the fruit of love. You don't grow joy in a moment. It takes a lifetime to cultivate the mature fruit of joy. And the same with all of these. I think also the fruit of the Spirit points us to the fact that these fruit find their roots in the Spirit. We're like apples, the the fruit, the characteristics of the Spirit, like apples on a tree. The apple doesn't give life to the tree. The tree gives life to the apple. But the apple is connected to the branch, and the branch within has the sap, the life-giving root and vein system of the tree, and that goes all through the tree, into the roots, and all the nutrients. Well, just think of how in the Spirit we're united to Christ. And in Christ, all the, the life and power of the Spirit and the power of God pulsates into our souls and brings forth these Christ-like characteristics that God wants to see in us. I think also fruit of the Spirit speaks of the fact that we are not just passive in this. If Paul said the works of the Spirit, you might just sit back and think, well, I just sit back and do absolutely nothing. The Spirit will work away and bring those things about when he wants. But no, fruit is something that has to be cultivated. It has to be grown. It has to be watered. It has to be fed. The the tree needs to be pruned. There's an activity about us, even though this fruit finds its source in the Spirit. So, I say all that just as a passing observation and reflection. Let's look at this catalog of Christian characteristics. I see them as three groups of three Christian characteristics. The first three, love, joy, and peace. These are mainly things we enjoy in relation to God. But as we enjoy them in the Lord, they radiate out from us and others can see them in our lives. You want to live in the goodness of gospel freedom? Well, how about the Spirit helping you to know God's love? to enjoy joy in his presence, to have rest in his peace in your heart. I think about this all the time when I'm praying. I just think, Lord, today, love, joy, and peace. Cause those fruits to ripen in my life. Love, joy, and peace. Every single human being on the planet, universally, they want that. Love, joy, and peace. It's what drives everything we do. The search for love, joy, and peace. And here we're told the Spirit brings those 
about in our experience. Second three, then, are things that we seem to extend to others. Patience, kindness, and goodness. Think of how patient God is towards you. Think of how kind God is towards you. Think of how good God is towards you. Well, if that is what God is like towards you, then no surprise that God wants you to be like this in the world. He wants you to behave like this towards others. He wants you to be God-like, to reflect his image in your relationships, to be patient, to be kind, and to be good. Then the third three, things we should seek to be in ourselves, if we can put it that way, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. Now, this is the spirit of the Son who works these things within us. So it's no surprise that these are all characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus used in his own description of himself that word gentle. When he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Would you be described as a gentle person? Would you be described as a faithful person? Would you be described as a self-controlled person? Well, Paul, described, or Paul says in verse 23, after giving us this list of the fruit of the Spirit, against such things there's no law. I think what he means there is that the law was given to restrain sin. Well, there's no law needed to restrain or hold these things back in any way. This is growth in Christian maturity. When these fruit when these character traits show up more and more in your character. So much of Christian maturity is character growth. Your character starts to be conformed so that you become more like Jesus. That's maturity in the Christian life. That is life on the path of Christian liberty. If you want to flourish and mature, concentrate on seeing your character transformed so that you bear the fruit of the Spirit. So there is a third way that we need the help of the Holy Spirit to stay on the path of Christian liberty. We need the Holy Spirit to help us cultivate godly characteristics. We need him to prompt godly desires, to help us to crucify sin, and to help us cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. But now, how do we grow this fruit? How do we walk in the Spirit? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? That's the question that we have to answer now in closing. Because Paul answers, if he was to be asked, how do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? He would say, well, walk by the Spirit. Seek to be led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's how these things will come forth in your life. On the path of liberty, the Holy Spirit marches out in front of us and we are to fall into line behind him and make it our goal to just keep in step with him. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to give us just three ways practically that we can learn to walk in the Spirit. And with this, I'll finish. If you want to walk in the Spirit, first, you need to recognize your need of the Spirit. And maybe this is something that will come out of this morning's message. We cannot please God without the enablement and help of the Holy Spirit. Turn to the Spirit as a person this morning and acknowledge your need of his ministry in your life. That is the first way you will walk by the Spirit. 
you, you pray and you recognize your need of the Spirit to prompt godliness and godly desires within you. Second, use the means he works through to bring forth his fruit. Now, this is, earlier I said, we have an active part in this. This is our active part in this. Use the means that the Holy Spirit works through to mature his fruit. And there are three main means I'm going to mention here. And I'm not just plucking them out of thin air. They're biblical. First thing we must take seriously if we're going to see this fruit brought forth is corporate worship. You've got to take seriously your part in the local church. Why do I say that? Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. How can you be filled with the Spirit in the corporate gathering as together you sing and you praise God and you're there encouraging one another and you're hearing the ministry of the Word? Anyone who plays fast and loose with the local church, who keeps the local church at arm's length, I fear for the maturing of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. It just will not happen. You cannot walk closely with the Spirit and then just not turn up to the place where He is most at work in the community. So we've got to use the means of corporate worship. Are you engaged as you come Sunday by Sunday? Are you seeking to be more engaged in the life of this fellowship, both on Sundays and outside of Sundays, in being in each other's homes, in practicing hospitality, in phone calls, in little messages, in cards? Are we taking seriously this means of grace, corporate worship? And with that is everything. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, our worship, our teaching, being under the oversight and care of elders and biblically qualified office bearers. Second means the Spirit works through is Bible reading. And I mean here now personal Bible reading. I'm speaking of mainly, but also the ministry of the Word at church. Ephesians six seventeen. the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, the Spirit wields his word like a sword so that when the, the, the flesh throws up desires... Go and do this sinful thing, think this sinful way, indulge this sinful behavior. You remember, like Jesus said, when Satan was trying to tempt Jesus, it is written, I must not give my time to this thing. And in that way, the Spirit takes the word like a sword and he just slays the desire of the flesh. And so if you want to take seriously the battle against sin, you've got to get serious about getting the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, into your bloodstream. The third thing then that we must, uh, you, the third means we must really engage in is prayer. Same passage, Ephesians 6 verse 18. We are called to pray in the Spirit at all times. That passage about the armor of God is all about defensive armor when you're under attack. But there are two parts of that armor that are offensive. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer in the Spirit. Prayer where you're depending on the power and grace of the Spirit to accomplish His good purposes. Praying in the Spirit means praying in dependence on the Spirit, recognizing we need Him to help us crucify the flesh and cultivate Christ-like character. 
So there's a second thing we must do if we're going to walk in the Spirit. First, we need to recognize our need of the Spirit. Second, we need to use the means the Spirit works through to bring forth His fruit. Corporate worship, Bible reading, and prayer. Then thirdly, if we want to walk in the Spirit, we must learn to trust the Spirit's power. Now, why do I say that? Well, I want us to make sure we don't miss the fact that verse 16 is a promise. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do you fight sin? You've got to learn what it means to walk by the Spirit. Because there's a promise. You walk by the Spirit, you won't practice these things. Because the Spirit will be actively convicting you as you walk closely with Him. In your conscience, all the red lights will be going on, all the alarm bells will be going And as we pay attention to the urging and the leading of the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit. How do we walk in the path of Christian freedom? We learn to walk by the Spirit. Let's just recap where we've been. We seek His help to stir up godly desires. We seek His help so that we will crucify the flesh on the one side and cultivate Christ-like character on the other. We recognize our need We use the means that God has appointed for the Spirit to work through to bring forth fruit and maturity. And we trust His power to work in us that which is pleasing in God's sight. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Apostle Paul said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So how do you live a life where you're enjoying the goodness of gospel freedom? You are where the Spirit is, and where the Spirit is, you are. You walk this week, as you wake up, and have a decision to make about how you use your phone. Or whenever your kids are stressing you out, and you're about to just just lose it, you just keep saying, Lord, help me. Or whenever you're lonely, or whenever you're fearful, or whenever you're anxious, or whenever you're overwhelmed. How can we fight to know the goodness of gospel freedom? We stay close to the Holy Spirit. We walk with Him. We live in Him. We keep in step with Him. That's how you enjoy the goodness of gospel freedom. That's a promise. Walk by the Spirit. And you will be free. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage that you've given to us. Where, Father, we're told that by grace, though we were once dead in sin, you sent your Son to redeem us from the curse of the law. In him alone, we're made right with you. We rest the fullness of our hope for righteousness in Christ. But then, as we're united to Christ, The Spirit of the Son is sent into our hearts and He infuses within us new longings for holiness. And then if we want to walk in those longings and see them fulfilled, we've got to learn how to keep in step with, how to live by and how to walk in the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to recognize our need to use the means that the Spirit works through to help us grow and that we would also trust the Spirit's power to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. 
Lord, if, if we've accomplished nothing else this morning, may we go out knowing that much more than we came in, that we really, really need to know the power, the person, and the work of the Spirit. Help us not to make the Spirit some vague, forgotten third person of the Godhead in our communion with you, but help us to delight in and to embrace our need of the beauty of the ministry of the Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close by singing what is essentially a prayer that the Holy Spirit would come and breathe his life within us. And if you feel that this morning you've got out of step with the Spirit, maybe you could just commit to making this your own personal prayer as you recommit to walking in the Spirit. Let's stand and sing together.
Let's pray. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.